I urge you then, as Hamilton would have urged you, to keep in mind that the federal government is not bad, but good. The trick is to use it wisely. That comes from the late, great Antonin Scalia. It can come across as pretty radical when you may be more used to President Reagan's maxim that the scariest words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. A fairly hopeless sentiment if you really think about it. So how can our politics and the public policy process be reoriented to serve the common good, the public good, and recapture Justice Scalia's call to action? Josh Hammer joins us today to get to the heart of that question. Josh is opinion editor at Newsweek, of counsel at First Liberty Institute, and a syndicated columnist through Creators. Josh joins us today to discuss the role of the judiciary in our politics, how to preserve human rights across the globe, and how to strive for a society in which all are truly heard. I'm Tom Shakely, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law. Welcome to Life, Liberty, and Law. I am Tom Shakely, and this is coming to you from Americans United for Life, where we advance the human right to life in culture, law, and policy. Check us out at AUL.org and become engaged in this critical work. We're joined today by the great Josh Hammer. Josh, it's such a pleasure to be with you. How are you doing? Tom, you know, I'm not sure if I've ever been introduced as the great Josh Hammer, but... uh, (laughs) Hopefully that's a harbinger of things to come. It's great to be with you as well. (laughs) We've also got Noah Brandt with us too. Yeah, always good to sit with you, Tom. I'm so excited to talk to Josh. Josh is doing amazing writing on his own, and also the things he's choosing to publish at Newsweek are really interesting. I remember reading last week a great piece there saying about Judaism, saying Judaism is emphatically pro-life, and uh, he's he's publishing the type of things that you don't see everywhere, and it's a really, really needed voice. We're going to talk about a lot of that, so I guess first, Josh, we've talked with a number of folks over the course of Life, Liberty, and Law about the ongoing conversation, the national debate that's really been occurring over originalism and over constitutional interpretation generally. You've been a part of these conversations uh, responding to Adrian Vermeule's perspective uh, that he shared in The Atlantic beyond originalism. We've, of course, spoken with David French on his perspective. But Josh, you wrote about common good originalism. I'm wondering if you can introduce that and unpack it a bit for us. Yeah, so it's really a pleasure to be with you guys. I mean, you know, look, I remember um, when I was at the University of Chicago Law School, when I entered there my 1L year, there technically wasn't on the books Law Students for Life chapter, but it was more abundant. Nobody, there was no funding. Nobody was involved with it. And I was one of two first years who helped resuscitate it. And I recall fondly and simultaneously not so fondly marching in sub-zero temperatures. In the local <laughs> that Chicago <laughs> winter. <laughs> that Chicago winter. <laughs> January, obviously, being the anniversary of Rose. So pretty pretty frigid times in Chicago. But um, in any event, this, this issue has always been a huge part of why I went to law school in the first place and um, you know, why I continue to do what I do in both the political, legal, and any other arenas that I'm forgetting and, and so forth. So great to chat with both, with both of you. Um, as far as what's going on from the level of conservative originalist jurisprudence, 
there's always been competing strands from my perspective of what it means to be an originalist. Um, and so even within kind of the, the confines of post-1982, which was the year the Federal Society was founded, even within the post-1982 world. Amazing how young an organization is. It, it freaks me out every time I hear it, 1982. <laughs> it's pretty, it, it is kind of remarkable. It really kind of makes you wonder, huh, what were quote-unquote conservative judges doing <laughs> prior to right. 1982, Right. Um, my contention, uh, just to quickly kind of preview where I'm going and answer that question, actually, um, is that some variety of what we think of today as quote-unquote originalism actually really does go actually to the founding. Um, it's like, it, it, and that should make intuitive sense, right? Because if you go back to uh, the, the American founding, and obviously we were deeply inspired by English common law, um, it's actually easy to forget that at the time of the founding, it was, it was actually debated whether or not we inherited the common law as substantive law at the state level. Um, Jefferson and Madison and the, the Democratic-Republicans warred vociferously with Hamilton, Adams, John Marshall, and the Federalist Party on that question. Uh, the Federalist Party obviously won out on that debate. But even going back to English common law, and uh, famously, of course, they did not have a written constitution, unlike us, which I think has implications for things like stare decisis, which we you know, may or may not get to on this podcast. But even going back to the unwritten common law judging in England, that judging or really that body of law qua law was done from the perspective that there are right and wrong answers to legal questions. Which, in my essay, Common Good Originalism, where I respond to Adrian Vermeule, who's you know a friend, I think very highly of Adrian, to be clear, um, I, I, I cite a 1996 quote from Clarence Thomas in a University of Kansas Law Review article, where he says, and I don't have the, I don't have the quote in front of me, but something closely along the following lines. He says, quote, my view of judging is emphatically premised upon the notion that there are right and wrong answers to legal questions. My contention is that that quote is essentially a working definition of originalism or textualism. And I think that actually goes back even to a pre-constitutional, pre-textual framework of common law judging. So I think that is our inheritance. What that inheritance means, again, is frequently debated. You have kind of the early post-Federal Society founding strand of more positivist originalists, those like Bob Bork and uh, Anthony Scalia, who asserted that the Declaration of Independence really has no bearing on constitutional interpretation. The Constitution is a wholly amoral, uh, a purely positivist document. Then you have some of those like Clarence Thomas, who say the Declaration and our underlying moral values do imbue it. And what I try to do in Common Good Originalism in responding to Adrian is to show that there is a conception of originalism that accounts for the moral thickness of the values of the American founding. I think people like Alexander Hamilton, James Wilson, John Marshall, there's no shortage of founding era thinkers who had this conception of what they were doing with the enterprise of law. They thought that they were kind of imbuing the background moral principles and thinking about these principles while they were going about the process of interpreting constitutional and statutory provisions. And in my essay, I, I point, of course, to John Marshall's, well, probably his second most famous ruling after Marbury versus Madison, which is McCall versus Maryland, the 1819 case upholding the constitutionality of the Bank of the United States. And if you look at Marshall's opinion, 
he is talking about the quote-unquote axioms, the first-order moral principles that undergird the entire interpretive enterprise. He actually uses the public good language throughout the opinion. You can just control F it to this day. So that is the conception of originalism that I have always adhered to. I think that flows pretty directly from the English common law. Um, and, and I think it's that Burkean, Hamiltonian, John Marshall strand of a more morally tenable um, natural law undergirded originalism that I am personally comfortable with. So I, I think in very crass, crude terms, we, we can probably think of that as a somewhat of a middle ground position between the pure positivists. Uh, David French kind of falls into that category. You mentioned him. Uh, there are plenty of other people there. My friend and former professor, Will Bode, has a New York Times op-ed that makes a pure positivist case for originalism. Um, so I think my approach is basically somewhat of a middle ground between that and Professor Vermeule's approach. Um, I, I don't think it's that far off from how the archivists view. Um, so we're trying to, what I'm trying to do is offer some sort of conception of law that has right and wrong answers and that fits neatly in the intellectual pedigree of the Anglo-American common law constitutional order. Um, and also allows social conservatives to feel like we have a home here. That's what that's what I'm trying to do at a, at a theoretical level. Yeah, it's such important work too. I know we've spoken with Hadley a few times about those principles that lie beyond and behind the text of the Constitution. I mean, you mentioned, you know, of course, Britain not having a written Constitution the way we do, but as pro-lifers have discovered, it seems in many ways we also have unwritten constitutional. Uh, values, at least, that that seem to strike down the more common-sense language of the law. Um, you write at one point, Josh, in your piece at the American Mind uh, about something that Adrian has brought to the fore, I think, in these conversations, which is the moral character of, of our society, the moral character that the law speaks to. And I think the, the raising of moral principles has made certain people uncomfortable. I don't think originalists, per se, but certain people who maybe think of the law as just sort of a, a neutral um, framework, a sort of almost a libertarian framework where, you know, well, maybe we should have, you know, a broad human right to life. But if some people think that, you know, that they can kind of ignore that if their own individualist priorities, their own autonomy uh, should be paramount, well, then do we really have a way to adjudicate that? And I think Adrian and you and others are bringing to the fore again we do, um, not necessarily because of what's in statute or what's in the Constitution in, in written form even, but because of, of the implicit, that natural law, implicit character of, the, of our way of life, right? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, again, it's not, it's not just constitutional, it's statutory too. Um, you know, a big part of why I wrote that piece at the time I wrote it, I, I drafted it in April, I think it went up in early May. Adrian's essay was obviously in, in late March. But I say uh, pretty clearly in the piece um, that this was written in part because I, among so many others, um, saw what was coming with respect to Justice Gorsuch in the Title VII case, the Bostock case. Very presciently. <laughs> yeah, well, I, you know, I tweeted out in February about the rumors of that. It, it, got, it, it got like 2,000 likes, something like that. I mean, it kind of went viral <laughs> on, on, on Twitter. I, and, and, you know, the fact that I was I wish like, you were wrong. I wish you had bad information. <laughs> yeah, but it's amazing. Very few people seem to want to speculate about the Supreme Court, especially if it goes against their, their desired policy interests. Yeah, no, it's, it's true. And I, I had some friends kind of gently nudge me and say, why are you doing that? And, you know, it is what it is. But um, in any event, I, 
I, I want to get this. Really, what I was trying to do is I wanted to get this discussion out there because I because I was trying to do exactly what I ended up kind of trying to bring to fruition in the common good originalism piece, which is basically saying, look, this is not working. We were told that the Trump administration was going to have a well-oiled machine, and this was different. We were only going to vet and select the most uh, you know, ardent conservatives out there. Um, hold aside for a second the fact that if you had actually looked at Neil Gorsuch's record closely enough, we would have seen that there was a case in, I think, 2009, where as a Tenth Circuit judge, he was sitting by designation in the Ninth Circuit. And the, the, the case is called Castle. I can't remember who the other party was, but... It actually was this exact issue. Um, so, you know, if we had looked at a little more carefully, we would have seen that this, that this sort of thing was there. But in any event, to, to get back to jurisprudence and theory, um, looking ahead, what I was trying to do was respond to Adrian in a way so as to suggest that there actually is a quote-unquote thick conception of originalism. And, you know, Tom, with your question, this is like really what you're getting at, I think is the difference between a thicker conception of originalism, a natural law undergirded moralistic conception of originalism that folks like Hadley discuss uh, all the time. James Wilson and John Marshall and some of the founding talked about this in their, in their legal writings. Uh, Samuel Chase, um, who infamously was attempted to be impeached on highly partisan non-legal grounds. Uh, Justice Chase wrote about this quite frequently, including in the famous 1798 case of Calder versus Bull. There really was a robust body of uh, common law trained lawyers who I think would today be uh, co- conceptualized, at least from my perspective, as fitting within within the broader originalist confines, who understood that when you are interpreting a legal text, it's not that you are putting your policy preferences there, but the very interpretive act can only be crystallized and understood and undertaken really in the first instance with that thicker conception of the overarching society's background moral norms. And kind of fast-forwarding, that is the form of interpretation, again, in this case, not of a constitution, but of a statute, but, you know, for our purposes, it's basically the same thing. That is what Justice Gorsuch did so so wrong in in, in Bostock. And I've been happy to see a lot of people, even of a more libertarian-leaning variety, folks like my friend Randy Barnett, who have criticized the case, even though they've done so uh, not on moralistic grounds, but on pretty straight statutory interpretation grounds, which is okay, but it doesn't get to the crux of the problem from a right-of-center jurisprudential perspective. And the problem, of course, which, you know, I, I, in Common Good Originals, when I talk about the obvious parallels here between the legal space and kind of the political arena more generally – the problem, if you can go back to the kind of warring Sobermari versus David French political debates from 2019, is that we on the right far too often are making hollow procedural wooden arguments about following a procedure, about following uh, an Enlightenment era tenet that is morally neutral. We're tying one hand behind our back while our adversaries on the other side are, you know, I would say they're making immoral oftentimes, but at least they're, they're speaking in the language of justice and morality. They're operating in a moral framework, while many of our folks tend to, you know, tend to think of themselves as being neutral, um, you know, balls and strikes people. Exactly. That's exactly right. And I, I really appreciated what Adrian did in his Common Good Constitutionalism essay. I think what Adrian was trying to do 
Um, and what he's continued to explicate, he had a really helpful model opinion piece at that new blog whose name I can't quite remember um, in June. Um, he's trying to basically do for the, for the legal arena what I think Sorab has uh, largely done uh, in his you know, now infamous against David Frenchism essay. And I really appreciate that. The only point of my response is to try and emphasize two things. One is we can't lose the forest for the trees here. We need to uh, we need to understand that we are ultimately still interpreting a legal document. Um, and the other thing is that what I try to do is try to remind people that we have to interpret that within the broader centuries-long uh, rearview mirror view, if you will, of understanding that we fit neatly within the Anglo-American order going back really to Magna Carta. Um, and, I, and that's what I tried to do in Common Good Originalism is connect, is c- connect thinkers like Burke, Hamilton, uh, John Marshall, and really going back all the way to 14th century thinkers like John Fortescue, but that's... That's kind of a nerdy discussion for perhaps another day. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good, though, and it's it's necessary. You know, I'm thinking uh, one part of your piece I want to highlight here, too. And again, you can find this on the American Mind, on AmericanMind.org, if you search Josh Hammer. Um, but you, you mention um, Aristotle. You say, as Aristotle puts it in his politics, after all, a state exists for the sake of a good life and not for the sake of life only. And you... Uh, you, you go on to write that individual liberty, while intrinsically important to a limited extent, is classically understood more crisply as an instrumental means toward loftier ends. And you say these ends are to promote justice, uh, human flourishing, and the common good. This, I think, speaks to that thicker nature that you're going for. But, I mean, Noah, this is a conversation that's unfolding day by day. Yeah, well, it's so good to have Josh on here because we've had some luminaries of the legal, of like the conservative legal movement and people who are thinking about this stuff really thoughtfully. You know, on one end, we've talked to David French. We talked to him, I think, the week after he published uh, a piece called Against Christian Authoritarianism, taking a very strong stand against (laughs) uh, what he perceived Adrian Vermeule to be arguing. We've talked to Josh Craddock about it. But, you know, Josh, our Josh today, Josh Hammer, he's a lawyer, but he spends time communicating with real people. So I'm hoping he can break this down for a simple Missouri man like me. How, how can people who are pro-life people who are interested in this, how can we kind of, I don't want to say take a side, but move forward, right? So we have these the originalists and the post-originalists, and now you're a common good originalist. What are the things that we can actually do to confirm judges who share our view on the human right to life like what 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 is something that we can take away from this even if we're not arguing all the time about constitutional interpretation so great question um this obviously is kind of the million dollar question especially from a pro-life perspective as to where does this all of this you know theoretical ivory tower academic uh argle bargle like where does it actually tangibly lead i i aim to write more on this um but i had a piece also at the American Mind, maybe at this point two or three weeks ago, that started to talk about this, about this a little bit. And the few things that I mention right there within the within the confines of, of judicial nominations, there are a few things going on here. Um, Adrian had a piece at the Washington Post this week, actually, um, talking about where he, why he sees conservative judges defecting. And from Adrian's perspective, it has to do with the background norms of the socio-political order that constitute what he calls our unwritten constitution. 
more traditionally, I think what conservatives have said is that judges who are nominated by Republican presidents, this is kind of the conservative, uh, excuse me, the, the, the traditional conservative conception as to why people like Souter and Blackman and Stevens and all these judges end up just flipping. It, it, it's, it's the so-called greenhouse effect, uh, which is famously a term named after a longtime New York Times court watcher, Linda Greenhouse, which basically posits that Republican judicial no- nominees, once they get to D.C., you know, they want to be liked. They go to the proverbial Georgetown cocktail parties, or, or maybe they're not proverbial. I've never been to one, but I think maybe, they're, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe they're real. I live there. I've never been invited to one. <laughs> well, that speaks highly of you. Um, <laughs> um, I, I think that, you know, Adrian kind of dismisses that in favor of the background norms. To, to, to me, it's kind of the same thing. I, I think it's actually kind of a, a distinction without a difference. Um, and in order to combat that right off the bat, there are a few things that I would recommend, um, you know, if I were advising Federal Society, Heritage Foundation, White House Counsel's Office, et cetera, on what to do. First is we need to, like, we need to really do our homework. I mentioned the so-called, or not so-called, the Castle Opinion from the Ninth Circuit, where uh, then-Judge Gorsuch basically foreshadowed exactly what he would ultimately then, you know, in real life do in Bostock. So we like, really need to like, actually look at every single writing that every nominee has written. That really, in theory, should not be that hard. Second, this gets kind of to the heart of um, what was a showdown in February 2019 between Senator Josh Hawley and uh, then-nominee to the D.C. Circuit, Naomi Rao, who was nominated to replace uh, now Justice Kavanaugh on that court. And even though Hawley ultimately voted to confirm Judge Rao, he found troubling some of her writings, uh, especially with respect to abortion and the, uh, you know, the pseudo-constitutional doctrine known as substantive due process. And I defend, I was one of the rare people at the time who uh, repeatedly defended Josh Hawley. And I did so not because I am critical of Naomi Rao. In fact, she's actually been a great judge so far. Um, but because it is imperative that we make sure, especially social conservatives, make sure that these nominees are not just being vetted and approved by the Coke dollars, you know, George Mason Law School, big libertarian, big tech mafia, but that they <laughs> actually have spoken repeatedly and written repeatedly about our issues, the issues that, frankly, animated the founding of the Federal Society in the first place. Before it was, I, from my perspective, hijacked by a lot of kind of Coke dollars and, and administrative state-centric interests. So we need to really make sure the nominees are true, legitimate, full-spectrum conservatives who speak to our bread-and-butter civilizational issues. And then there were a few ways to actually do that. In, in, in the American Mind piece that I referenced that I wrote a couple of weeks ago, I actually suggest that we should have a hard moratorium on nominees to the Supreme Court who have scholarly or judicial expertise in administrative law. I'm not, I'm, I'm not an administrative state apologist. I am not... I'm, I am not um, you know, I'm not squishy or whatever you want to call it on the administrative state. I, I think I think these are fine. <laughs> squish, issues. squish. No, <laughs> <laughs> the 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 issue is that when we nominate people who specialize in administrative law, which obviously is kind of the the area of law of choice of a lot of these institutional actors I'm talking about, Coke, big tech, and and so forth. We really risk for forsaking judges who speak to those moral issues, to those civilizational defining issues. And, and you know, that's kind of what happened with, um, with, with Gorsuch. Gorsuch was known as an administrative state guy. That, that's really like who pushed for his nomination. 
the and, and the, the, the as in he was against the administrative state in general, <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So to clarify, yes. I mean, he was very good on Chevron deference and Hour deference, which are both administrative law doctrines. And to be clear, like those are those are relevant issues. Like they do matter. Um, but we need to make sure that our nominees have spoken like repeatedly to our issues. So I suggest in the American Mind piece a legitimate moratorium on administrative law centric nominees until you know to borrow. Uh, and, 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 and infamous quote from the president until we can figure out what the hell is going on. <laughs> um, so, um, and then re- related to that, I, I, I throw out a couple things as well. One is, I actually don't think it's crazy, but I, I actually think that there should be a legitimate cap on the number of years that a Supreme Court nominee can have lived inside the Beltway. I, I really actually yeah, I like that. that. Um, uh, in the in the piece, I suggest five years. I'm open to seven or eight years. Ten years is too <laughs> ten, 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 ten years is too long. And then something else that we should finally consider is, I think that we should seriously consider another moratorium on Harvard and Yale law school grads. And I'm not just saying that as mm, I love that. I, I, I'm not just saying that as, as a University of Chicago law school grad who's <laughs> itching for our long overdue first Supreme Court uh, justice. But I actually think there's something to be said for what Scalia said over and over again during his 30 years on the bench, which is just pointing out the utter absurdity of, of lawyers who generally, not always, but oftentimes hail. They grew up in either California or the Northeast, but are always educated, it seems, at Harvard and Yale Law School, deep in the bowels, of course, of uh, groupthink academia. There's something to be said for getting physical, literal diversity of viewpoint. You know, a lot of conservatives obviously kind of half seriously um, make fun of Sonia Sotomayor, who had the line during her nomination about, uh, you know, the diversity that a wise Latina brings to the court. Now, I say half seriously because there actually, I think, is something to that. There, there really is something to be said for a genuine diversity of life experiences and viewpoints. I just think the conservatives should actually run with that, and we should use That's it to right. push people who come from the literal and proverbial heartland. And we see that with uh, the push behind Amy Coney Barrett and others, right? It's that recognition that in a nation as pluralistic and as diverse as America, there is a problem, yeah, when we get into the situation where we have a sort of a, a sheltered class of elites governing the country. I mean, I think of this in the context of the Supreme Court decisions across the spectrum, right, where... Uh, you know, is there a risk where, you know, we have a Supreme Court where people look different but think the same way? I think that's that's definitely the case. So these moratoriums make sense to me. Yeah, I mean, it's only a bare minimum, right? I mean, like, it, these these remedies are also both, you know, I'll be the first to admit, they're both over and under-inclusive. I mean, you're, you're going to miss out on some great people and you're not going to include some people who would, otherwise would have been con- included. There are no perfect answers here. We're, we're all kind of grasping at straws, figuring out how to remedy this project that clearly is not working as well as, as we all want it to be. But I, I really do feel strongly about the administrative law point. Um, th- that, above all else, is the one that I kind of want to just hammer home. Because, you know, it, it was Brett Kavanaugh, too. Brett Kavanaugh was really heralded as an administrative law expert. And that, that actually is directly relevant because he served – on the D.C. Circuit, and the D.C. Circuit, um, the traditional feeding ground to the Supreme Court, by very nature of where it sits, is an administrative law heavy docket because you're oftentimes dealing with the various regulations that come out of you know all the alphabet soup agencies in Washington, D.C. And look, sometimes you do get 
true full spectrum conservatives who come from the D.C. circuit. In fact, both Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas actually came from the D.C. circuit. So I'm not fully criticizing the D.C. circuit per se, but given what we've seen from Justice Gorsuch um, in Bostock, and especially given everything else that we've seen just more generally throughout the federal judiciary, I really think it would be a good idea for the judicial noms apparatus at large, both inside and outside the administration, to really look at judges whose uh, scholarly work, whose judicial record, et cetera, focus on areas of the law that don't just appeal to the libertarian mafia. I, I, I don't think that's asking that much, frankly. I think that's such a good point, Josh. And one thing, one more thing I want to ask you on this topic, because every time I bring this up with people, uh, especially attorneys, they sometimes get really freaked out by it. But why can't we just sort of ask nominees what they think about the law? It, se- <laughs> it seems like in these Senate hearings, right, you can't, you can't ask them anything or every question is like, well, I can't comment on that because there might be a case about it. But why can't we ask them what they think about something like the human right to life and whether that comports with our Constitution? Is that that out of this world just to be honest with these nominees and have these nominees be honest with us before we give them lifetime tenure on our nation's highest court? No, of course it's not crazy. I, I mean, we... As a matter of principle, we obviously and emphatically should be doing precisely that. Why can't we do it? Why can't we do it? <laughs> it's like, what's the holdup? I'll tell you exactly the pushback that I get from people who have worked, you know, on, uh, in the Senate and the administration. The experts, yes. Yeah, I, I'll tell you exactly the pushback that I get. The pushback that I get is they say, how the heck do you expect to get this person nominated? You know, if he or she goes on the record as saying that Roe is a travesty or that there's a right to life in the Constitution. or so, Right, which is telling in D.C., right? It's like, how could we get them passed if we ask them to be honest? <laughs> right, right, right. No, and, and like, that actually, that's a great point because there's an intrinsic benefit to kind of just getting this out in the open. The problem with conservatives, or I guess really Republicans, picking judges... Going back as far as Earl Warren, Earl Warren was an Eisenhower nominee. I mean, it's crazy. You know, going back to Roe versus Wade, I think the ratio of Republican nominees, Democratic nominees, it's like, it's like 10 to 4 or 11 to 4. Republicans have had two to three times as many nominees. And we, we, can't, we literally, or they, I should say, like Republicans, they, they cannot get it right. Harry Blackman, the author of Roe versus Wade, John Paul Stevens, the liberal lion on the court for 38 years, David Souter, Anthony Kennedy, Sandra Day O'Connor, John Roberts now. I, and, you know, query again what's going to happen with Gorsuch, especially after— It hurts, Josh. It hurts as you're saying this, right? But you're right. I mean, you see these key figures put up by Republicans, and they've also been key figures in upholding abortion jurisprudence. Yes. No, that's, that's absolutely right. Uh, you know, look, we could go on and on about Roberts's utterly bizarre um, invocation of stare decisis principles in that gene medical case. Um, if you, you know, my own, my own two cents on that is I think at some point it, it's, you got to just chalk it up and say that he probably, and this is just my personal rank speculation, but I think he probably has a deep-rooted personal animus against President Trump. It would, would, would honestly be my best guess there. Um, Politics, but, huh? Yeah, I, 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 really, I really do think it kind of does boil down to that, especially for the chief justice. I mean, the chief more so than the other justices. You know, John McGinnis, a professor at Northwestern Law School and a really, really brilliant guy, has a recent essay at the Law Liberty blog, which routinely has quality content, I think. And he's, he kind of talks about the different role historically 
that the chief justice has played uh, vis-a-vis other justices. And it, it, it is quite different. And he has, he, he has one paragraph or two that I think are really telling. Think about it. When you talk about a given court, when we say the, the Warren Court or the Rehnquist Court or the Roberts Court, we literally use the chief justice's name. And when history, you know, prover- when history proverbially judges that court, that chief justice's name is invoked. So as a basic matter of name recognition, how the history books describe what happens in a, in a given court's tenure, you was, it, it, it does make some degree of sense that the chief's considerations might be a little less legally principled and a little more overtly institutional or, or political. And yeah, I think that's what's happening with Roberts. That's what's happening with the June medical case. But look, my only point of throwing out all those names since Roe versus Wade of all the justices who have disappointed um, conservatives and pro-lifers is just to kind of point out what I think should be an obvious fact, but unfortunately is not obvious to a lot of people, which is the status quo was not working. You know, I saw Bill McGurn, the Wall Street Journal columnist, who's a pro-lifer, worked in the Bush administration. A good man, yeah. Yeah, I don't know him personally. He seems like a great guy, but he had a column this, uh, earlier this, this week or last week, I can't remember exactly when, basically saying, this is all working fine. Just, you know, like, uh, it's, so, sometimes we're going we're gonna to be disappointed, but that's just the nature of the beast. Um, I just could not more strongly disagree with that. I, I, I don't, frankly, understand the mindset of someone who looks at what's happening and concludes that all is fine, given the numbers and the names I, that I just threw out there. So, so something clearly has to change. Um, I, in, in the American Mind piece, I throw out change at the theoretical jurisprudential level, that's what we're talking about, um, at the judicial noms level, and then also I think the law school education, the curricula level has to change as well. But something has to give. The only debate should be what has to give. That's right. And I think as we look at the future of the court, you know, we see on the one hand, of course, Justice Clarence Thomas has just been a lion recently on calling out the total failure of the Supreme Court when it comes to correctly reading and interpreting the Constitution when it comes to the human right to life. Um, I, you know, you kind of get the sense of, of somebody realizing, you know, his, his career um, is, is coming to an end at some point in the next, you know, few years, 10 years, whatever it is. He's the longest-serving justice, uh, and it seems like he's trying to lay the groundwork to, to speak as much to the future, to his, to his successors, as to his present colleagues, in just calling a spade a spade. Um, and whether Roberts or other li- others listen to him is an open question. But I think it gets to another issue you've written about, which is the issue of judicial supremacy. Um, you know, Jordan Perkins, uh, a PhD student at Columbia, tweeted out after uh, the court handed down its 5-4 ruling uh, on Oklahoma um, regarding uh, American Indian lands. And, you know, Jordan Perkins, we was making light of this, but he said, you know, just saw the Oklahoma ruling. Somebody needs to keep the justices off PCP. He says it's yet another distinctly revolutionary opinion overturning decades of practice by legal authorities under their power as the one true sovereign of our, of our republic. The court should possess no such power, Perkins writes. And he says, it's as if we turn our eyes to the council of nine, like 60 times a year to see how much of our political and legal practice they will choose to eradicate. <laughs> and it's true, right? I mean, it's just crazy. This, this super legislature that we have. And, you know, I'm thinking back just a few years ago uh, to the beginning of President Trump's administration. You know, Paul Ryan was heralded, right? We're going to defund Planned Parenthood. We're going to do all these things. And we've seen executive orders. You know, we've seen the kind of standard political football that you get between partisan administration changes like the Mexico City policy, 
and various administrative law review um, items. But we haven't seen significant action legislatively on abortion or on a host of other human rights issues. And just the opposite, we've seen sort of this, this standard miring down uh, in the courts and other things. So on the one end, you know, how do we deal with, with the fact that the justices are kind of held up like oracles and, and our Congress even, uh, let alone the executive, seems too timid to call them out? Yeah, boy. Um, I mean, you're asking the million dollar question. I'm asking you the easy questions, you know. <laughs> 20 second answer, Josh. No, I'm joking. <laughs> so look, um, if we define judicial supremacy according to its common definition, which as I've written about it repeatedly, and I think most people in the legal academy and the legal commentariat um, discuss it, we're talking about a conception of constitutional interpretation wherein the judiciary and most specifically the Supreme Court, in its ad hoc judgments, does not just bind the litigants to a case, but more broadly settles a political principle such that even those who are not party to the case, but nonetheless come before uh, similar, perhaps uh, even essentially identical litigation across the federal judiciary and across the country, um, are bound by the judgment in in that uh, in that initial ruling. The problem with judicial supremacy, quite simply, is that it has no basis whatsoever in the Constitution or a legal tradition. <laughs> it, 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 it is an erroneous, complete, and utter falsehood. And if you go back to, at, to, to the time of the founding, it was pretty unanimously understood that this was the case. Whether it's kind of the uh, the Democratic Republicans, the Jeffersons and Madisons of the world. Um, you know, a lot of people cite Marbury versus Madison, which was a John Marshall Federal Society, not Federal Society, excuse me, Federalist Party. It was the party of Hamilton, Adams, and Marshall. Um, a lot of people cite Marbury versus Madison for the proposition that the judiciary is all-powerful. But nothing, nothing could be further from the case. Um, Alexander Hamilton, who was really the intellectual godfather of the Federalist Party, if you go, if you if you read Federalist seventy eight, which is like the that that is the Federalist paper that is most clearly associated with uh, what Marshall establishes in Marbury's Judicial Review, uh, Hamilton doesn't say anything remotely approaching that. Nor does Marshall say anything remotely approaching that in Marbury versus versus Madison itself. On the contrary, as uh, Michael Stokes Paulson, who's probably my favorite constitutional scholar of the past twenty years has said repeatedly, the actual holding of Marbury versus Madison is not judicial supremacy, it's constitutional supremacy. Because when the Constitution violates, uh, or when the Constitution is in tension with anything in our legal order, um, whether that's a statute, an executive order, or I would argue a, an erroneous precedent, we're talking about decisis, the Constitution has to trump that. And this, and, and this was understood going up through Abraham Lincoln, who I think falls neatly in that kind of Hamiltonian, Marshallian, nationalist tradition. Lincoln was the most famous proponent of, of, of uh, a constitutional supremacist, non-judicial supremacist way to interpret the document. I mean, he, of course, famously defied Dred Scott, Root and Branch. He issued passports to freed blacks in the Western United States. Isn't that incredible? In direct contravention. Of Dred Scott, he openly flouted it. I can imagine New York Times headlines. Josh, how did he do it? The Supreme Court said he couldn't do that. How did he do it? You know, I I, I guess he's like a magic wand or something (laughs) that he you know that he got at uh, Ollivander's, whatever the Hogwarts. It's it's almost like he was the president of the United States. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Um, 
And, you know, that was still understood as the common practice going up and through the turn of the century. In fact, it wasn't until this obscure 1958 case called Cooper versus Aaron, a fairly short opinion, actually, where for the first time in the court's history, they arrogated to itself the power to essentially say that we are right in matters of constitutional interpretation because we're final and you must listen to us. It was, a, it was the first time the court ever said that, and it was 1958. So it's a relatively recent thing. Wow. The problem is that, obviously, you know, the, for the reason that we're discussing it is for the past 62 years since then, that principle has just been completely imbibed, like per, the proverbial mother's milk, throughout the legal establishment, throughout law school education. Uh, very rare do you find a constitutional law professor who, who questions this. I actually was very blessed to have one. I mentioned him earlier, Will Bode, who I had for multiple con law classes at University of Chicago. Uh, Will is fantastic, actually, on this issue. He, he, he had a piece in 2015 at the New York Times that caused a lot of people to tear their hair out, uh, uh, people on the left, to be clear, because he basically said that uh, if King versus Burwell, which was an Obamacare statutory case at the time, came out the other way, Obama wouldn't necessarily need to apply it to anyone but the parties to the suit. And people in the legal academy and like the uh, commentary just just lost their mind at that. Um, but not everyone is as privileged to I have had to, have to have had a professor who was making these arguments, let alone making them publicly. The overwhelming majority of legal academics, even constitutional law scholars, including many of our friends, by the way, especially among like the libertarian crowd, uh, you know, our friends at Cato, IJ, orgs like that, they're pretty much across the board judicial supremacists. Um, and, and, and I have repeatedly in lay article after lay article in a law review article that went out at the University of St. Thomas Law Journal in, in April, I, I've tried to push back and explain that this is not how it is supposed to be. It'll take a certain special kind of president to pull a Lincoln, so to speak. Uh, what I have said in my writings is, uh, you know, in an election year, it's probably not going to happen. I really thought the president actually might have done it last year after the census citizenship case. I thought that was a perfect opportunity for him to kind of pull a Lincoln and say, we're not going to enforce this. Um, my hope is that President Trump is just maybe populist enough and just crazy enough, frankly, where in a second term he actually might do something like this. But I'm waiting on pins and needles for it at this point. Yeah, and the citizenship is a good example, right? Because this is a case when we've talked about administrative law and it's like, all right, what does that look like in practice? This is a situation where the Supreme Court stepped in essentially to tell President Trump and the executive branch that they basically sort of followed their own rules in a way that the court didn't like. And so they threw out sort of their approach to the census and the executive branch just sort of went along with it. And that's the, that's the, the part where you look at it and you say, if these are co-equal branches of government, uh, shouldn't people be minding their own shops? So that's exactly right. Uh, the DACA case this term is also the exact same thing, by the way. Um, that's, I mean, that's, um, if I recall, the sense decision case, just like the DACA case, both rest on the same statutory grounds. They're both um, APA, the Administrative Procedure Act, which is kind of the the, the bedrock of our liberty. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's the bedrock of our liberties. If you're an administ or an anti-administrative state enthusiast who you know just like <laughs> wakes up and goes to sleep at night, and all you want to do is talk about administrative law, which you know that's um, that's fine. That's your prerogative, to be clear. Um, but um, Look, it, to your point, and it's a, it's a good point, of course, 
the issue with judicial supremacy, um, as, as I was kind of getting at there, is that it, it violates the most rudimentary feature of our entire constitutional order, which is that there are separate branches. There are multiple branches. And as Article 6, the oath clause of Article 6 of the Constitution says, it, it could not be clear. It says it in emphatically clear textual language. It says that all executive, legislative, and judicial officers of both the federal and, st and state governments, by the way, it's getting a, a little dice here, but you know we, we, we get there if you want to. But federal and state governments are all sworn to take an, an oath to, quote, support this constitution. You're not taking an oath to support, quote, this constitution as interpreted or misinterpreted by a fair 5-4 majority of the Supreme Court. That's mm. not there. That's, not there. That's right. That's not there. What's there is to, quote, support this constitution. So, I, I mean, I cannot think of a better example than the census case or the DACA case, frankly. And, and Josh, um, just, just to take us back once again to sort of talking talk, talk to the, the, the regular folks here, talking to the Noahs, is, you know, I remember back in a high school debate, you know, like 16-year-old Noahs going at it with some guy on parliamentary debate, and we're talking about the Constitution, and he, and I finally ask him the question, I say, so, so how, what is constitutional and what is not? And he, he says, what is constitutional is what the Supreme Court says is constitutional. That is the final arbiter of truth. And you write in your piece, you, if in Newsweek, you say, quote, conservatives have become accustomed to treating the decisions of the Supreme Court as final. And so as we're once again trying to distill this just for regular people, that's not true at the end of the day, right? It's, or at least it's not always true. We don't have a constitutional court like there is in Germany, and the Supreme Court's word is not always final, right? That's absolutely correct. And again, all it takes is just looking at the way the framers wrote the Constitution to understand that. They, they did not write it so that the lay common reader, you know, in 1787, 1791, or 1868 when the 14th Amendment was ratified, they did not write it in such a way where someone could easily read it and conclude that one branch was to have interpretive superiority over the other. The very fact that that Article 6 oath clause is there and that there are three branches to begin with, again, the most important point of them all. Um, I mean, it would be an insane system, frankly, if we really truly thought that every congressman, every senator, every president, every executive branch official was bound by a 5-4 majority. The, the founders unanimously did not think that. I mean, I, 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 famously in Federalist 78, Alexander Hamilton describes the judiciary as the, quote, least dangerous branch because it has neither force Incredible. nor will, but merely judgment. And, and, and the level of hubris that it takes for a theoretician, a practitioner, an academic, or anyone to get from that unmistakably clear Hamiltonian language to the modern post-Cooper versus Aaron conception of judicial supremacy, I, I find the hubris, perhaps even the disingenuous gaslighting by some to just be astonishing. Um, it, 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 the problem with constitutional law, Noah, to get to your point about the layman, the problem with constitutional law is that constitutional law is made by lawyers. That, <laughs> like, that, is, that is literally the problem with constitutional law as an entire body of law. It, it, uh, Lincoln, um, you know, he had legal training, but it, it, it's not like Lincoln was he was never a Supreme Court. He wasn't an admin law like guy, yeah. yeah. He didn't spend a few years at the big firm making that big bucks, you know? Yeah, so it oftentimes takes like an, an, an outsider's perspective to actually understand what we're talking about better 
than people who go through this deeply corrupt uh, ABA cartel-run legal education, legal establishments to actually understand what we're talking about. Now, that's right, yeah. And as we look at the branches, too, you know, you think if, if too much of American life seems like it has been reduced, just hollowed out, just distilled into the executive branch does something and the Supreme Court responds in some way, and there's almost never really anything heard much from the legislative occasionally, except if you need a stimulus bill or maybe a budget occasionally. That's a problem. You know, we've got three branches and we need all three of them to engage. But, uh, you know, these things can be um, challenging. They are challenging. We're trying to figure out what the future of America is. And I think as we come to a close in our conversation with you, Josh, you know, your piece recently, uh, your creator's piece, How to Fall in Love with America, with America Again, I loved it. And I'm just going to quote from it here. So good. Um, you say, far too many young Americans grow up and ultimately graduate from high school without any underlying appreciation of America's structural and substantive virtues or its unique role in the evolving history of Western civilization. Our collective civic efficacy is appalling, you say. Now, you propose, you lay out how we can fall in love with America again. Tell us what led you to write this piece and what some of your prescriptions are. Well, thanks for flagging that. That was a fun piece to write. You know, I, I grew up, um, I, I haven't lived in, in the New York area in a while, but I grew up in the New York suburbs. And I, I remember, I, I grew up in kind of a smaller town. We had just this wonderful July 4th parade. It started actually right at, right at, the, at my street corner. And it went for five or six blocks to the local field. And it was the most patriotic red, white, and blue thing you could ever imagine. I love it that. Was, it was kids who had their bicycles all in red, white, and blue with the streamers. They put little flags on their helmets. The high school band was in uniform playing Yankee Doodle Dandy and you know the Star Spangled Banner and all of that. Um, we got to the field after the parade, and there was a, there was a, who, there was a contest who could bake the most patriotic cake. Uh, just all this great Americana stuff. And, you know, I look at what's happening in the country today. Obviously, you know, I, I mean, I was just so depressed at what happened after the murder of George Floyd. And, you know, it is a murder. We should feel comfortable saying that. But yeah. the, the anarchic savagery that has gripped America after that, uh, and you couple that, that anarchy, that, that, that antipathy for the rule of law and the, and the importance of law enforcement, you couple that with this just horrific cultural insurrection that is happening by the people vandalizing, toppling statues, saying George Washington is racist, Abraham Lincoln is racist, there really does seem to be just a dire lack of appreciation and gratitude as to why this country is, is so good. And, you know, Yuval Levin, um, the editor of National Affairs, uh, great D.C. public intellectual, I remember reading Yuval years ago where he basically said that the quintessence of conservatism can be distilled in one word, gratitude. And I've always really kind of, um, you know, that's obviously overly simplistic. I mean, he was trying to, you know, acute pithy statements. There are, I think there obviously is more to it than that, as, you know, including the uh, Aristotle quote that you mentioned earlier in the podcast discussion. But in any event, gratitude, especially from a Burkean conservative perspective, plays a huge role in that. So if we want to stop the internal strife in this country, if we want to stop this ridiculous vandalizing and statue toppling, and ultimately if we want a society that is more rooted to the or oriented, I should say, towards the common good, that is a little more solidaristic, we have solidarity with each other, where we actually think in the classic Tocquevillian fashion 
that we had that, that that we as human beings care for one another that we have the the bonds of loyalty such that you know a, a civil society maintains its coherence we literally need to make people love this country again and in in the column that you're talking about i lay out just just a few ways to do it um i mean education is really where it all starts um you know our current polling on civic efficacy is just utterly horrific uh, if, if, if i recall does it exist be, at all i'm <laughs> You know, I think it's like 31% of Americans can uh, even name I, – you know, I can't remember if it's 31% can remember one branch of government or all three. But, I mean, like, mm-hmm. regardless, it's, it, it's, it's, it's very, very bad. Um, and we need to make people like literally learn in education because it all starts in education, in, in elementary school in particular. Um, I wrote a column for the Daily Wire back when I was there over a year ago saying start teaching the Constitution in third grade. I don't think I don't think that's crazy. Yeah. Like because it, it, to piggyback off of our previous segment, um, the Constitution is not that complicated. The Declaration of Independence—they're really not that. Complicated. Yeah, these are not hundred-plus-page documents. Yeah, don't need a lot of great understanding. That's for sure. Yeah, no, that's that's obviously correct. So I think that we, especially if we're trying to pursue a, a, a society more oriented towards solidarity with our fellow man and towards ultimately the common good, we really do need to rediscover patriotism. And that, that, that starts with, with education. Um, it obviously also starts in the home. Um, social conservatives, I think rightly for decades now, have been very concerned with how to make families great again, uh, you know, to, bar- to borrow a slogan <laughs> from, our, from our friends at, at the American Principles Project. Um, and these two things closely relate to one another. But I think using the levers of the state, because in our federalism system, it, it is the states that control uh, the public schools at educational curricula, using the levers of the state while we have public schools to forcibly direct curricula to reflect the Constitution, Declaration, and frankly, ideally broader than that, including the great works of the Western Canyon more generally, I think that'd be a good place to start because education is really where it all begins to turn this whole thing around. Yeah, if we don't know our own history, if we don't know our own communities, if we haven't had experiences like the one that you remember from July 4th, we don't know one another as neighbors. We can't come to love and sustain our country, right? We need these foundational pieces. And so, you know, I think it's important. Your piece is important, how to fall in love with America again. But thinking about this in everyday life, I love that idea of using gratitude as the keystone, as a cornerstone uh, for how we think about our day-to-day life, right? Because if we want to build up a better America outside of politics, outside of the judiciary, outside of all this other stuff, it's just as simple as making day-to-day life better. And if we think that sounds not ambitious enough, think about how hard it is to change our own habits, right? How to become better people ourselves. And think if it's hard, you know, in my own life, which of course it is, any number of things are a challenge, all the greater the challenge for America. And those are the type of challenges we need, I think, if our country is going to come back to sanity on something like the human right to life or any host of issues. So I appreciated that piece. Josh, um, thanks for the conversation. As we come to a close, something we do every show is our shot of gratitude. We just share something that we're grateful for. So I know I'm uh, throwing this out here as maybe a bit of a surprise, um, but uh, if you want to go first, I'll let you go first. Well, I love that. Uh, that could not have segued more naturally. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, that's pretty great. Um, funny how that worked out. Um, so look, what I'm grateful for, I'm grateful for a lot of things. Um, you know, I, I only went public with this on Twitter 
earlier this week or last week, I can't remember. Uh, I actually had the coronavirus. I, I tested mm. positive for it um, a few a few weeks ago, uh, maybe a month ago at this point or so. I, I, I it, it was a very mild strain. I, I lost my senses of smell and taste for probably two and a half, three weeks. Had a fever for a couple of days, wow. but um, no respiratory issues or anything like that. Um, You're I'm freaking thinking, Noah out here. <laughs> well, I, I don't know if I've heard about the, the taste and smell thing. <laughs> It's, oh yeah, that's, well, that's a thing. That's a very common symptom, actually. Wow. Um, so I, I'm just grateful that it was as mild as it was, um, and then it's in the rearview mirror. I'm totally fine and healthy now. Um, I'm here in beautiful, sunny Florida at the moment, looking out at palm trees, swimming <laughs> pool, and I'm just um, I'm just grateful to be healthy and uh, grateful as ever to be a citizen of the greatest country that mankind has ever known. That's beautiful. Yeah, I'm glad that you recovered. Thank God. And, uh, you know, Noah, how about you? What's something you're grateful for? You know, over the uh, Independence Day weekend of 2020, I got to go to Gettysburg Battlefield for the first time. That's right. And it was such such a fantastic experience. It's only an hour from D.C., and it's close to so many things in sort of the mid-Atlantic and East Coast, and I'd really recommend it everyone go. And uh, I was sad that I that was my first time. I wish I had gone before. But a lot of stories were inspirational. The most inspirational one for me was a story of uh, John Burns, who became a 69-year-old civilian uh, volunteer during the Battle of Gettysburg. The Confederates were pretty much coming up in a line right by his house, and he was a veteran of the War of 1812. He was an old man at this point uh, in, the, in the 1860s, and he took his old flintlock musket and his little horn of gunpowder, and he set himself up in the woods and shot at the Confederate soldiers. Oh, wow. he, he got a few shots wow. on them. He got shot three times himself. Something? He was 69. Wow. He was 69. He got shot three times himself, uh, but he was able to crawl back to uh, his neighbor's home. And his neighbor goes, this is old man John Burns. It, it takes him to his wife, who's, uh, who wasn't very happy with him, but he survived. And uh, President Lincoln met with him when he when he gave the Gettysburg Address and other things. But uh, What a hero. What, what a hero. And like it's you know it's scary to think, like, uh, would I do that? Would I want my dad or grandfather to do that? Who knows? But he was a real patriot. So I was really thankful and grateful to get to hear his story. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm thinking, you know, of so many great men and women, folks like that, you know, across our country, some of them are memorialized, some of them aren't. Um, but those that we put up monuments to, and, you know, I know, Josh, we talked about kind of the uh, season of, of anarchy that we're living through now. As a pro-life American, one of the things that's made me uncomfortable in seeing some of the destruction of statues and monuments to people, including, you know, it's like most recently it was what Frederick Douglass that was destroyed in Rochester, New York, where he lived. And it's like, if you're attacking Frederick Douglass, there's a real problem. But you're seeing in some of these uh, attacks, it's not just that the statues are torn down, uh, like a Junipero Serra in Golden Gate Park in California. It's that then you're seeing some of the videos when the statues are torn down, people are hitting them with skateboards. They're kicking the face of the statue. And that's a part that, that makes me uncomfortable because, you know, it's that impulse to attack the image of the human person, even in artistic form, uh, I think should... So I'm grateful for public monuments because we're going to need them. We're going to need to restore the ones that have been torn down, uh, but we're going to need to preserve the ones that are still here because, you know, we look upon these human faces. I think of, you know, the statues that I see just coming in here to Americans United for Life in D.C. Uh, and, you know, these are folks who are gone, but their memory can still influence us uh, to remember the good and to build toward the good and hopefully to live in the better aspects of the legacy of, of all the men and women we, we commemorate. So more monuments. Josh, thank you so much for joining us today. We'll link to your profiles, but what's the best way for, for people to follow your work? 
Well, the easiest way is just to follow me on Twitter. I publish everything there. So uh, fantastic I'm Twitter at- follow, fire feed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, Josh underscore Hammer on Twitter. Awesome, Josh. Thank you so much for joining us. You got it. All right. If you enjoyed the conversation with Josh Hammer, be sure to rate the show. Give us five stars wherever you're listening: Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it is. Rate the show and leave a review. Make sure to follow Americans United for Life, AUL.org, Facebook, Twitter, and so forth. We advance the human right to life in culture, law, and policy, and we can't do it without you. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for Josh or for us, email us at life at AUL.org. I am Tom Shakely, and until next time, thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Law.